Great. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those and turn to Genesis chapter 15. We're continuing our series in the beginning, which is a verse by verse walking through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, foundational book of the Bible. And we're going to see uh, some of the many ways in which it is foundational, especially the, the, the passage we have today. So we're going to be reading that. Uh, Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the words of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. We come to one of the most important passages in the flow of biblical history perhaps in the flow of human history. Uh, this is one of the most, uh, one of the sweetest, most precious passages that you can read. Uh, if it's not, it doesn't immediately jump out at you, I will show you exactly what I mean. Uh, this is the kind of passage that gives us real hope in a book that has kind of laid out a very bleak story for humanity, hasn't it? In fact, it's going to get a lot bleaker in the book of Genesis. Those who have read ahead know that there are some pretty messed up stuff in the book of Genesis. Not very child-friendly, but we're just going to go straight through it. It's God's word. Uh, And the story of redemption of humanity really hinges on verse 6. Verse 6, the last verse that I read, is one of the most important verses you will have read thus far in the book of Genesis. Abram has come a long way since we met this man all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. He left his people, his land, his kindred in Ur, and he's done the trek over almost 2,000 kilometers to reach where he is right now. And he's come through a lot. This former pagan, he's proved himself on the battlefield last week. We saw that. We were, uh, not last week, but the week before that, we saw him go off to battle and be victorious over these other kings who had just been victorious. He's a man of courage and valor. He's going right into the belly of the beast to rescue his nephew Lot. We see a lot about this man, Abram. We saw last week that he rejected the spoil from the, king of, uh, the city of Sodom and he tithed to the king-priest Melchizedek. And now, victorious, after all that work, he rests from his labors. He gets a break. He goes back to where he's made his home. It's a well-deserved break. And then a vision comes to him. The word of the Lord comes to him in a vision. The Lord appears to Abram. Now, we don't know what that looked like, but there's an interesting precedent that we see in this passage. A clue lies in the first thing that God says. What does he say to Abram? Fear not. Fear not. Now, if you guys know anything about the Bible, you know that when any uh, appearance or vision of God shows up, the first thing that needs to be said is, fear not. Don't be afraid. Even when an angel shows up, it's quite an unsettling and frightening thing. It's not just like something that happens every day. It's quite um, upsetting. When the women go to Jesus' tomb after he rose again from the dead and the angel is there, what does the angel say to the women? Fear not. 
seems to be like, I don't know, in some sort of manual for any time that the angels show up. It's like, first thing to say, fear not, then go on to what you have to say. When the Apostle John receives a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1.17, uh, I'll put it up for you. Uh, when I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. And here we got the Apostle John at the end of his life, after everything he sees, falls as if he was a dead man. This is intense. It's a reoccurring theme. The phrase fear not again and again and again and again shows up within Scripture. And it's simply because encountering God in this way is terrifying. It's frightening. It breaks all categories. It transcends everything we know about reality. Whenever a supernatural being comes for humans, the natural and understandable response is fear. I don't know if that happened to me. I'd be pretty terrified. We are afraid of what we don't understand. And these beings are well beyond our comprehension. They're fearsome in appearance. They're holy and righteous. And one of the first things that most people notice is that they are not righteous. When Isaiah comes before the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, what is the first thing he recognizes about himself? He's a sinner. He's a man of unclean lips. This is the prophet of God recognizing that he is nothing in comparison to what he is just witnessing in that moment. And so for the first time, Abram sees God. And all this time he's heard about God. He's heard God's voice. We see every single time it says, the Lord said to Abram. But now the word of God has come to Abram in a vision. He's seeing something. And we don't know what it looked like. The text doesn't tell us and we don't want to speculate. But, you know, it would have seemed pretty fearsome. Abram would have been pretty terrified because God says, fear not. And then he continues, Abram, I am your shield. Your rewards shall be very great. This vision is a reminder to Abram. It's a reminder of something he already knows. He already knows what God, as God has said this, right? That he knows that God is going to be his shield, that his rewards are great. God has promised to take care of him. God has promised to curse those who curse him and bless those who bless him. He has promised to protect Abram. He knows this. And God has told him again and again and again and again that he's going to bless him and make him a great nation. He promises that his descendants are going to bless the whole world. He knows this. So what's going on here? Well, he needs to be reminded again. For us, this story is a few paragraphs away, right? From other times that God has spoken to Abram. But we've got to understand that in the flow of this story, this is years and decades in between these events. It's not just simply one supernatural thing after another happening in Abram's life. No, this is a considerable amount of time. It's been a long time. And Abram gets these amazing signs from God. They're not every day. And he's beginning to doubt. I've only been a Christian eight years. It's not a long time to be a Christian. And yet over this short period of time that I've been a Christian, I've doubted the goodness and the promises of God multiple times. And I constantly need reminders to get back on track. I constantly need reminders to remind me of truth, to remind me of what is true about this world. And Abram is the same. I've talked to people who just given their lives to God and they're baby Christians within the year and only within that year they begin to forget basic promises. Sometimes only weeks later. We as humans just need that constant 
reminder to be constantly surrounded by the words of God. That's why we need community. It highlights for us just the absolute importance of being in God's word, being around his people, persisting in prayer, having that reminder constantly of the things of God. And this helps us stay on track. We need these reminders. I mean, just reflect on your life. How often have you just needed someone to tell you the same thing over and over and over and over again? I'm one of those idiots. I'll put my hand up. That's me. Abram desperately needs a reminder here, and I'll I'll show you why. You can tell that he's got something bothering him. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram's struggling. Years and years have passed since God promised that he would have a descendant. God keeps telling him he's going to have descendants. His reward is going to be great. And everyone's thinking, how is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? How is this even going to come into existence? I mean, he's not getting any younger. His wife's not getting any younger. This just doesn't seem like it's feasible. It's becoming more and more impossible by the day. It's becoming more and more unlikely. All his wealth, all his stuff, it's going to go to the best man in his house, this guy named Eleazar of Damascus. This guy isn't a descendant of Abram. He's not even related to him. He's from Damascus. He's from a completely different part of the world. He's just a member of his household, a servant probably, the chief servant, the guy that kind of runs the show for him. And he's probably a good man. Abram vouches for him. He's happy for his stuff to get passed on to this guy. I mean, his name is... Uh, in Hebrew means God is my help. That's a good name. If you want to name the kid, Eliezer is a good name. He's he's, He's adopted the religion and the culture of his master. He's a convert to Abram's God. But Abram's confused. How are these promises going to come into effect? How are they going to happen? How is this going to happen? And notice Abram isn't questioning God, at least not in an accusative way. We should be careful when we question God. Some of us, when we question God, it's fine and it's good to question God, but we need to be very careful in how we do it. We don't do it in an accusing way. We don't accuse him of lying or accuse him of evil or accuse him of not having our best interests in heart. That is not how we question God. When we question God, we question him because we want clarity. We want something that's confusing to be made clear. And this is exactly what Abram's doing. He wants to understand, he's confused. He doesn't get it. What is going on here? He doesn't know how God is planning to do this. His wife's barren. They're both getting old. Children, just, it's impossible. How is this going to happen, God? And Abram asked the right question because we know God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And here we see a little bit into God's heart, into who God is. He takes Abram outside as a father might lead his son out for an object lesson. And he points him out to the stars. Let's read what he says. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. I mean, nothing against Eleazar, but he will not inherit everything. Abram will have his very own son. And that must have seemed amazing to Abram. His whole life, he's been trying for a child and so far he's failed. 
This would have been a point of great difficulty and sadness. Families that go through fertility problems know what it means to struggle to have children. And this is a point, I imagine, of great sadness for Sarah, his wife, for him. And God gives him a sign. And he takes Abram outside to the night sky. And man, that would have been beautiful. No light pollution to speak of. We're in the ancient world. There's no big cities to light up the sky. And there before Abram is the heavens and all its beauty. The Milky Way, all the planets, the stars, the moon, all its beauty. And God says, have a go at counting them. (laughs) Don't want to do that. You're going to be there for a long time. He says, even if you can, if you can number the stars, go ahead. Give it a go, Abram. See if you can number the stars because that is exactly what your offspring will be. Amazing. What a feeling that would have been for Abram to go from the sorrow of pain of never being able to have children to now just trying to cope with this reality that God has just set before you that you're going to have descendants more numerous than the stars. Not only will Abram be a father, but he'll be the father of a nation beyond number. Amazing, beautiful. He saw all that. He saw the seeming impossibility of it all. And how did he react? Did he reject it? Did he throw up his hands and say, oh God, you're here again telling me this stuff. Don't you get it? It's not going to happen. It can't happen. It's impossible. Is that what Abram does? No, he does not do that. It says, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He saw the stars, he saw the promises of God, and he thought, yes, I have no idea how this is going to happen, but I know who you are, God. It is going to happen. This will happen because God can do the impossible. God can make all things happen. And Abram believed the Lord. And something amazing happened in that moment. Something they might have just not caught on to in that moment. But God counted him righteous because of that belief. Abram now saved by his faith in God's promise. What? What is going on? How did we get here? This is huge. I mean, this is perhaps one of the most important verses in Genesis because if Abram can be counted righteous by believing God, doesn't that mean you can too? I mean, it wasn't Abram's obedience that made him righteous. It wasn't Abram cleaning up his life that made him righteous. It wasn't because Abram was such a great guy because we know so far in the story he's a very flawed individual. He's very messed up. He's got a lot of problems. He's like us. No, that's not what's going here because what's going on is that his faith saves him. The faith that makes one right with God is a trust that God will be true to his words. It's a hope that God will be faithful to his promises. Abram believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. To be righteous means to be in the right. It's easy to understand. It's in the word. It means to be in the right, to be morally justified in the eyes of God, to be without sin, to be without stain or blemish. And it's obvious from Abram's story that you cannot obtain forgiveness for sins and righteousness before God by good deeds. Abram's not the guy you want to go to if you want to try to establish that. It's not simply thinking yourself as a good person, being a good person. Our salvation, our justification is a gift 
and not a reward. It is a gift and not a reward. It's no wonder that the New Testament loves this verse. It shows up multiple times throughout the New Testament. Uh, Verse 6 has been quoted at least three times in the New Testament. We're going to have a brief look at some of those. Uh, Classic, if you guys know your Bibles, you know immediately where I'm going, Romans 4. Um, The Apostle Paul quotes verse 6, and he has something amazing to say. Really, really focus on the language he says here. Romans 4, 3 to 8. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one of whom, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man on whom the Lord will not count his sin. Good words. Paul's got a lot for us here. Uh, how many of us thank our boss when they pay us? We go to work, we get that pay slip in the mail or we get it, you know, deposited in our account. What am I talking about? And uh, are you going to start thanking your boss? Are you Are going to send him a letter saying, oh, thanks for, thanks for paying me today? No, when you work, that's your due. You owed that. You don't have to thank the person for that. That's what you are owed. It's not a gift. You're owed that money. It's your wage. It's your pay. And in the same way, if you can earn your salvation before God, salvation is not a gift. It is your due. It is your reward. It is your wage. This is, in a sense, the system of all the religions out there in the world. You do this, and then God may accept you. You go through these busy tasks, this, this labor, these rituals. You work really hard at being a good person. And then if you are good enough, God will accept you. It sounds a lot like a wage and not a gift. It says Abram believed God and without doing anything or earning anything before God, he was gifted righteousness. He was counted righteous. Paul says here that God justifies the ungodly. That's me. I'm in that camp. I'm ungodly. I'm in, God justifies messed up people like me. And those are the people that God reaches. And there are millions of people out there in the world that don't think that they need forgiveness or maybe a tiny little bit of forgiveness, but they're pretty good. All right. Please don't push too far into my life. I don't like people putting me under the microscope. But for Abram, you know, He's given right standing, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's given right standing because of his faith. He was given righteousness, even though he was ungodly. That's what Paul's basically saying here. That's what he's saying. I mean, if I was Abram, I'd be a little offended. You're like, I'm the one who stands in for all the ungodly. But that's what is going on here. If Abram can be saved, then there's hope for us all. He says in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. This is the first step to really knowing God. If you want to know God, you've got to come before Him humble. You've got to come before Him acknowledging your sins. You've got to come before Him recognizing that you need forgiveness and you cannot earn it. You cannot earn it. Those are the kinds of people that God forgives. But you might say, look, Cody, you know, that was true of Abram. 
You know, we're talking about Abram, right? But it might not be true for us. Abram's a special guy. He's used in a special way by God. Why do you think that it's normative for all of us? Why do you think that this is the way that God acts? Well, let's have a listen to Paul in Galatians 3, 5 to 9. Honestly, I almost fell off my chair when I read this passage. Galatians 3, 5 to 9. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Here's our verse again. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Amazing. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. How does that even happen? We see that Abraham heard the gospel, the message of Jesus, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And you might say, how on earth did Paul get this out of Abraham's life? How did we get here all of a sudden? How did the apostle Paul pull this out of it? Well, we've got to remember that the Bible is one big storyline. It's not a bunch of uh, books here and there thrown together in this ragtag collection. It is one unified book written over a period of 1,500 years telling one story. Every page points to Christ. Every page shows us. Weaved through the threads of history, this amazing tapestry of grace. We see that. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abram that Gentiles like us can be saved. I don't know, some of you guys may have some Jewish heritage. I'm a white boy, I've got nothing. I'm as English as they come. But by God's graciousness, I am counted as one of Abram's children because I have his faith. From Abram, a descendant would come. We know this who would bless the whole world. We know who that is. For a long time, people didn't. They didn't know who that would be. For Abram, he had this little glimpse into this gospel message, this tiny little glimpse, a small foretaste of Jesus. And it was going to eventually be Abram's great, great, times 40, I'm not even kidding, grandson, Jesus, who would come along 2,000 years later. Abram believed this good news. He didn't know how it was going to happen. He didn't know what was going to happen, just like he has no idea how he's going to have a child. He doesn't know any of this stuff. But he believed God. We don't need to know all the details. You're not saved by knowing all the details. If that was the case, we're in big trouble. The most important thing is that you trust that God can work it out. This is what faith actually looks like. We're going to have another look at Romans 4, verse 20 to 22. It says here that no unbelief made him, that that is Abram, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. I know some of you guys have thought about it and you've asked me about it, reading through Scripture, ask yourself the question, how did anyone even get saved before Jesus? How were any of the Old Testament righteous, the Old Testament faithful, how were any of them justified? Were they saved by obedience to the law? 
Now, we don't have time to go through Hebrews 11, but if you want to read through Hebrews 11, you can know that that is definitely not the case. The law is powerless to save anyone. Being a good person is powerless to save anyone. No one was ever saved by merely being a good person that had their life together. They were saved the same way we are now. Before Jesus, they were saved by believing that God is faithful to his promises. That's what it says here. Fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted. That is why. The Old Testament faithful, those who believed in God and had faith in his promises, those were the ones who were saved. Just as Abram was fully convinced that God would do what he promised and bring blessing and salvation to the whole world. He didn't know all the details, but we are in a privileged position because we know most of the details, don't we? That is a far better position to be in than not knowing. And Abram believed that God would save. He knew that God would save. And he saw Jesus' day and was glad. Verse 23, we'll continue. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is how it happened. We are privileged beyond measure that we get to see what only Abram glimpsed. That we get to know what only Abram saw through a dull window. Paul says it's for us who believe in Jesus that he was delivered up for our transgressions. Not some other group. Our transgressions. He died in our place. The only perfect man who was fully obedient to the law was delivered up in our place to bring us forgiveness. And he was raised from the dead for our justification. It is a gift. Who earned something there? It wasn't you. It was Jesus' work. He worked and he swapped his wage with yours. He took your death and gave you life. Our faith is what applies the work of Jesus to us. It says here, it would be counted to us who believe in him. That is all you have to do to be saved. This is it. Christ's righteousness alone is the only righteousness that can bear the sight of God because it alone is perfect. God will not accept any other. It is given by grace, just as if it was ours just as if it was ours. The amazing thing about the book of Genesis is we are 15 chapters in and every page has been preaching the gospel to us. Every page has been preaching the gospel to us. Humanity, as we've seen, was created good. Very good, in fact. God created this world to be good in perfect union and harmony with him. And then we sinned. And humanity has been one tragic car wreck after another. One tragic step down, away from God, full of violence and disobedience and going after all different manners of false gods. And we're only really scratching the surface of the messed up stuff we're going to see in Genesis. Just get ready for it. Humanity is powerless to save ourselves from this predicament powerless to save and if we're all honest we know we're pretty messed up too 
Here in Abram, we have this glimpse into the faith that saves us. But what is amazing is that the righteousness counted to Abram would come to him from Jesus 2,000 years later. Only Jesus can save us. The Old Testament faithful were not saved by different means. They were saved by Jesus. We are saved by Jesus 2,000 years later. Right? Abram didn't know how he was going to be made righteous. None of the other Old Testament saints knew either. But we know. We are privileged to find out and share this message of salvation to all that will believe and come into God's kingdom. We've been privileged beyond measure. And it's amazing, often when we have the most privileges and the most things before us, we don't look into them. We don't avail ourselves of the things that are right in front of us. This word that you have right now can get you arrested in some countries, get you thrown in prison. We take it for granted. We take a lot of things for granted. Jesus said in John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, most of us know that the word gospel means good news, and it is good news. But there's no such thing as good news unless there's bad news. If you walk into your doctor's office and he says, I'm really sorry, you've got cancer, that's bad news. Good news is it's treatable. There's a high survivability rate. That's good news. And there's good news because there's bad news. And the bad news is what Jesus tells us right here. Not everyone gets to be included. Not everyone is included. Not everyone will be saved. Jesus says, For all those who do not obey the Son, they shall not see life. The wrath, the wrath of God remains. And God is angry. And rightfully so. We're a messed up bunch. I think I've told you guys this story before, but when I was a chaplain at Belmont Christian, I remember I used to have to catch up with all these boys that had behavioral problems. And uh, I think that that's what they thought my job was, to just kind of coach these young boys. And I just thought, no, nah, gospel's coming in this situation. I remember I brought this guy up and I told him, God's angry at you. He's angry at all the stuff you do. It, you make him furious. And I remember this kid had never heard anyone ever say anything like that to him in his entire life. And he was like blown away. And then I just launched into a gospel presentation. At the end of it, he was like, can you tell my mom this? Like he was just, he thought it was the most amazing thing ever because he knew deep down that God was angry at him and everyone kept telling him, you know, all this good stuff. No one wanted to share with him the bad news and he knew there, were bad, there was bad news. God is angry. Genesis, we've found so far, it makes us uncomfortable. This gives us an uncomfortable look into ourselves. We know that. But it's until you recognize your need for Jesus until you recognize how much you desperately need Him, if you do not turn to Him, the wrath of God remains on you. It's not that by rejecting Jesus, the wrath of God all of a sudden comes upon you. It was already there. Jesus is the thing that lifts it off you. Jesus is the only thing that can save us from a dark predicament. Without Him, we face this terrifying reality that we will stand before God and be made to give an account. And God is not going to weigh your good against the bad. It's whether you've lived your life in rejection to him or not. I always tell my youth kids, because some of them don't necessarily have any idea what sin is, but really good analogy for it is I say, if I plugged a USB in your head, downloaded all your worst thoughts, chucked them up on the screen for everyone to see, what would you do? And they were like, oh, we'd be gone. <laughs> we'd be out of there. Like, we wouldn't want to stick around. And I'm like, and God sees that all the time. What do you think God thinks of you? 
you disregard this amazing gift he puts before you, a gift you do not deserve, then there is no other way that you can be saved. There is no other way. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. I read it before. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So what are you trusting in this evening? Are you trusting in the perfect work of Jesus? Or do you think you can make your own way there? You can somehow bargain with God, negotiate with Him, put your good deeds in front of Him, because we know that's a fool's errand. Only through Christ can we be saved. Let's pray. Father, we know that the bad news is really bad. And it's hard to cope with the reality of it. But Lord, you have been so good to us. And Lord, you loved us. And you saw us in our predicament. You saw us in our delusions. In our self-righteousness. In our vain attempts to justify ourselves to ourselves and to others. And Lord, you loved us enough to tell us the truth. And you loved us enough to show us the way out. And Lord, you made that way out through the blood of your son, Jesus. And it was a dear cost to you. It was an amazing cost that you paid on our behalf. The mercy you give to us, Lord, is beyond the mercy that we could ever experience from anyone ever. Just, Lord, knowing that you will save us and that your promises are sure and that your son really did rise again from the dead. Lord, this universe is so much better now because of it. There is hope in a universe that has no hope. There is a future in a universe that has no future. There is a bright, shining light in the universe of darkness. So, Lord, I pray for my friends here tonight that don't know whether they follow you. Lord, would this be an opportunity for them to consider your son, Jesus, and to reflect on his work that he has done? We thank you for Abram and his example, Lord, and that you saved him and counted him righteous, Lord, even though he was a sinner and ungodly and undeserving. And that's such good news for us. I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.